it's not an easy thing going through the process of being ordained in a Presbyterian church. The first time that I was ordained, I had to go and take a written test on church history, on theology, on English Bible, uh, on practical theology. And that was the easy part, even though the test took several hours. Uh, then I had to go and stand before the presbyters. These were the elders of all of the churches within a particular region in that particular denomination. And when you stand before them, uh, you're given a kind of oral exam where any presbyter can ask you any question. And you're standing in front of them and it's you know, a lot of pressure and you've got to answer the questions. Well, one of the questions that I was given during that particular exam was what were the covenants that God made with man? And I answered, God made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's the covenant with David. And I went on from there. I had a friend who was sitting uh, in the pews amongst the elders of the church who later told me that uh, they overheard a couple of the presbyters and one of them leaned over and said to the other, he forgot the covenant with Abraham. Well, that was relayed to me and I said, well, I, I didn't forget the covenant with Abraham. I, I don't know if that person didn't hear me or if that person didn't realize that Abrahamic is the adjectival form meaning of or pertaining to Abraham. And then I thought for a moment and I said, you know, God didn't make a covenant with Abraham. Instead, God made a covenant with Abraham and his seed. Now, as we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 18, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice, just like we saw at the beginning in the garden, that God had already promised to Abram the things, the promises that were going to come in and through this covenant. And in fact, it is three chapters back in, or excuse me, two chapters back in Genesis 15, where we read these uh, portentous and pregnant words that uh, are brought up again in the New Covenant in Paul's epistle to the Romans, where it is said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. When that conversation happened, when that covenant came to pass, there was yet no sign on the human side. There was the sign on the divine side of the covenant, this smoking pot and this torch going between these split animals. But there was no human sign of the covenant until you get to Genesis chapter 17. And it is here that God gives, as the sign of this covenant, circumcision. Now, circumcision is uh, 
a delicate thing to talk about, a delicate thing to think about. Uh, but here we have a, a, a reminder that the God we serve is uh, no prude. He's, he's not uh, given to uh, the vapors and having to uh, lay on a couch and take brandy, uh, but rather we have God speaking directly and in uh, practically earthy terms in coming with this sign for this covenant. Let's take a look and see what exactly God says, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was uh, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I want to stop right there just for a moment. This is uh, one, if not the first, example of what I like to call uh, in the English language, it can apply to the Greek, it can apply to the Hebrew. God's uh, prophetic present. God's prophetic present. That is, it's an unusual tense, a tense that only God can use. Uh, he does the same thing when he uh, appears before uh Joshua, as Joshua is contemplating uh, the conquest of the city of Jericho. And what does God say to Joshua? But he says, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Well, (laughs) Joshua has been watching. Joshua has been looking. And what he sees is that mighty wall. What he sees is the people of Jericho in a place of safety and security. But what God is saying is, look, when I tell you something's going to happen, it is so certain, because I am God, it is so certain to happen that we can rightly speak of it as already having happened. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's future. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you. It's already done. That's what God's word is like. And by the way, friends, that applies to every single promise he has made to you. See, I have made you forgiven and at peace. I have made you, my friend. See, I have made you, my child. See, I have made you holy. See, I have made you glorified. See, I have made you full and what you were made to be. Some of that is certainly in the not yet. But when God makes a promise, everything that's not yet is already. I want you to notice, too, that while God gives this sign of the covenant of circumcision to Abraham and to Isaac and to all those who are under Abraham's authority in the house, he also gives Abraham this new name. He gives him a new identity. Now, you know, I trust 
that there is in naming an affirmation of power and authority. Just as God begins his conversation with Abraham by saying, I am the Lord your God, he's affirming who he is, his power, his authority. And then in saying, you shall not be Abram, but Abraham, he's again affirming his authority and his power because he is the one who names. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. That's what I mean. The covenant is with Abraham and his offspring throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, friends, there are a lot of folks who will speak of the Abrahamic covenant Uh, in a way that I think uh, radically misses its nature. They will say of the covenant with Abraham that this was a national covenant, that this was a fleshly covenant or an earthly covenant, that this covenant is a covenant about uh, the giving of the child Isaac, about the uh, what would come forth from Isaac and the offspring and the growth of many nations, uh, about the giving of the land of Canaan. And those are certainly all parts of God's covenant with Abraham and with his children. But friends, they're almost superfluous parts. They're almost... Uh, you know, what you hear on the infomercial, but wait, there's more. The sum and the substance of the covenant is not national. It's not temporal. It's not geographical. It's not generational. The promise is, I will be a God to you. The promise is relational. And friends, there's only one way to have God be a God to you. Now, I understand that that whether we recognize him or not, he is God. Whether we affirm that he is our maker or not, he is our maker. But in this language, in this context, for God to be a God to me or for God to be a God to Abraham is to be in this covenant relationship with him. And the only way that can happen is through faith, which is precisely Paul's point in the book of Romans. It had to happen that in Genesis 15, We're told Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I want you to see, I want you to understand that the gospel is given here. Now we talked early on, chapters back, back in Genesis chapter 3 about what we call the proto-gospel. The gospel in its least developed form. In this mysterious, shrouded promise of God that the seed of the woman would have his heel bruised by the serpent, but that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. 
I want you to understand that Abraham, excuse me, that Adam and Eve and all those who came after them, if they're going to have peace with God, it's not going to happen because animals are sacrificed. It's not going to happen because they believe in God. Of course, they believe in God. But it's going to happen on the basis of their trust in that promise, however vague it may be. Lord, I don't know what that means. I, that, that is a fuzzy thing. I don't, I don't know what this, who, who this seed of the woman is. I don't know when he's coming. I don't know what it means to have his heel bruised. I don't know anything about that. But here's what I do know. It's my only hope. Whatever your plan is, it's my only hope. And I throw myself on your mercy in that hope. That's how Adam and Eve were saved. And the same is true for Abraham here. Yes, there's a little bit more of the revelation. We have the smoking pot and the burning torch. Another hint that it would be God himself who would receive the punishment for our sins. So Abraham believed and now God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. And here is the sign for that covenant. And that sign is the sign of circumcision. Now, one of the things we have to understand about signs is the relationship between the sign and the thing signified. One of the reasons that people want to argue that the covenant with Abraham was physical or national is because, as we will continue to read through the book of Genesis and through all the Old Testament and into the New Testament and into church history, there are millions upon millions of people who've received the sign of circumcision who aren't at peace with God who don't have God as their God. So in order for us to see this covenant as being fulfilled, we have to reduce it and diminish it down to this land and to this nation. Of course, the problem is many times in history, including up to just 70 years ago, this same land was not in the possession of God's people. You didn't have a national, I mean, in the same way that you had unbelievers who were circumcised, so you also had that land not in the possession of the physical descendants of Abraham. So that can't be what it is. Instead, again, Paul tells us, not all Israel is Israel. There are some who are Israel in some sense, in an outward sense, who are part of the covenant community, who have the sign of the covenant, but because they don't have the thing signified, which is the faith, they don't have God as their God. They don't have peace with God. So the sign is supposed to be connected with the things signified, with the faith. But it's not always the case. Nor, by the way, is it always the case that they come at the same time. That is, people can receive the sign of the faith, circumcision, and only come to the faith later in their lives. 
So we have a sign and we have the thing signified. The thing signified is the faith. It is the thing that back in Genesis 15, Abraham had and why Abraham is considered righteous. Now the text goes on in the second half of the text to go back to the promise of Isaac, beginning in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Now, isn't it interesting that Abraham listens to God insofar as God says, Don't call her Sarai, call her Sarah, because here he calls her Sarah. But he doesn't seem to believe God when he says about the child. Isn't it interesting also that Abraham exhibits the same uncertainty, the same unbelief that Zacharias does when the promise is made about Elizabeth and her bearing a child. And he receives as a sign, as a kind of judgment, having his tongue sealed until the birth of the child. God is much more patient with Abraham and doesn't give him that hardship, but instead gives him assurance. And perhaps out of that conversation, out of God's willingness to be patient with Abraham, uh, comes what will come in chapter 18, when Abraham has an extended uh, negotiation or uh, back and forth with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God instead says, no, the child's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And, and Ishmael will be blessed. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. It's not the end of the text. The end of the chapter is another example of Abraham believing God. Because what does he do? He goes and obeys God. He goes and circumcises himself at his old age. He goes and circumcises Ishmael. He goes and circumcises all those who are of his household, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner. He fulfills God's command. Now, the circumcision doesn't give the faith. In fact, it's possible to have the circumcision without the faith. But if you have the faith, as Abraham did, believing God, your calling is to go in obedience and receive that sign. Now, in my judgment, and in the judgment of many, that sign, the sign of the covenant, in the new covenant circumstance, just as the body and the, or excuse me, the, the bread and the wine is a fulfillment of the Passover with the sacrificial system and the slaying of the lamb, so is baptism a fulfillment of this sign, just as the Lord's Supper is a bloodless form of the sacrifice, so is baptism a bloodless form of circumcision. There are other differences as well. I'm not disputing that, not wanting to have a debate about that in this context. 
but they're both a sign of the covenant. And in both cases, it's possible to have the sign and not the thing signified. It's possible to have the thing signified and not the sign like the thief on the cross. But our calling is to have both.